Welcome to the Climate Finance Podcast. My name is Jonas, and this podcast aims to mainstream climate finance by interviewing high-level investors, researchers, and policymakers who have made significant contributions to the climate finance space. Please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered as investment advice. Enjoy the episode. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the Climate Finance Podcast. Today's guest is Sean Kidney. Sean Kidney is the CEO and co-founder of the Climate Bonds Initiative. CBI, uh, as it's commonly known, is an international investor-focused NGO focusing on mobilizing global capital for climate action. They are the only organization working solely on mobilizing the $100 trillion bond market for climate change solution. So welcome, Sean. How's it going in London? It's cool. Thanks, Jonas. And thanks for having me on your show. Yep. So I, I've been really looking forward to this and I've been following CBI for the past few years. And uh, what I'm really interested to know as before we delve uh, deeper into Climate Bonds Initiative is your personal uh, professional background. I read that you were a history and politics student at University of Sydney. You ran several media uh, ventures and eventually you helped out with marketing for several uh, Australian pension funds. And you also were a non-executive director of Greenpeace Australia. Yeah, look, there's a bit of a history there. Look, I, I'm old, Jonas, so we can go a long time about this. <laughs> let, me, let me try and give you a shortcut. I, I had a crisis when I was about 21. I was running a commercial magazine design company. 22, 23? God, I can't remember how young I was. I was young, unbelievably young. And I had to do an ad for a used car salesman for this magazine and I honestly could think of no redeeming features. I mean, this guy was just a dropkick. And at that point, I gave up. I closed down the business. I went traveling overseas, and I never did commercial work again. <laughs> I couldn't do it. I came back, and I got involved in community work. I, I'm what they call nowadays a serial social entrepreneur. It's a fashionable Silicon Valley term. I've set up a series of businesses, businesses with names like Social Change Media, Social Change Online, Pluto Press, all in the sort of marketing and communication. In the 90s, I did a lot of work for pension funds, and it really made me think about the change of how of capital ownership in the world and what the implications are potentially for how we run society in a world where we've been overwhelmed by short-termism, you know, executive capture in six-month returns, all that sort of stuff. And, um, and then when I was approaching 50, I had a crisis. One of my businesses went down which took me ages to pay back debts and all that sort of stuff. My father died in a hospital in New Zealand. And when I went to spend what turned out to be a month by his bedside, we thought it was going to be two days, uh, I grabbed a couple of books on my shelf just in case I had to do some reading. And you know how you put these things on your bookshelf and you never get around to reading them? They just sit there for two years or three years and finally you put them away. I had this book, which was the Proceedings of the, of the Conference of Catastrophic Climate Change at Exeter University, and it was chaired by Tony Blair when he was Prime Minister. And I thought, okay, if Tony Blair's chaired, it must be good. You know, sitting in a small hospital in rural New Zealand when my father sleeping most of the time, I had to read something and I read it. And it was terrifying because I read all these really dry scientific papers and sometimes read them three times. And I got to the end of them and I started thinking, you know, I think they're saying that we're toast. That's how bad it is. I think they're saying they're toast. This was 15 years ago, 16 years ago. And um, it was freaky. And I thought, whoa, I've got, I've, got to, I've got to contribute in this somehow. And then I came back to Australia where I was living at the time and I probably had a stroke. 
after going a, on a hike in the wilderness for two weeks, I came back and went and had to go to hospital. And that kind of makes you think about life. You know, I started thinking, Jesus, I could die any minute. I suppose I'd better try and think about what I've always wanted to do with my life and I better start doing it. Anyway, one thing led to another. I just had this, I had this blinding moment, you know, where you, know, you get one of those uh, understanding of what the future holds, where I just realized, you know, I want to work on how we work together as stewards of the planet for the rest of my life. And climate change is what it's about, right? Because if you don't fix, there's no bigger stewardship of the planet issue. And if we don't fix climate change, there ain't no civilization left. We are toast, as the scientists have made it very clear to us. And that led me to the journey that I'm on now, which, by the way, after some thinking and looking at it, I thought, you know, we might be able to get long-term investors, these pension funds, insurance funds, as a force for change because they've got a, a 20 to 30-year fiduciary duty to match assets and liabilities. So they have to look at long-term at a time when everyone else is looking at two years away or six months away. And it's worked. It's working. It's like amazing. It's taken, well, when I launched this climate bonds initiative at Copenhagen COP in 2009, we had about um, a billion bonds outstanding from two issuers, the European Investment Bank and World Bank that were like this. And now we're at about 2.5 trillion US. And we've got investors around the world deciding, which is what we're really about, to push governments to do more because they want more things to put the money in because the green stuff is now so popular. We've got investors thinking that green is an opportunity to make money, not a cost, not a burden. So, you know, it's going pretty well. I'm pretty excited. It's just that, unfortunately, the climate stuff's not going very well. We're kind of 10 years, if not 20 years behind. So it's like a, boy, talk about a sprint to the finish line, hoping we can get over the line before things get out of control. That's where we are now. Yeah, thank you for uh, the great introduction. Yeah, so uh, you mentioned that uh, you launched uh, CBI in 2009-2010. I wanted to understand how did you build an organization that has such a global scope? How did you attract all these top international partnerships? And how did you uh, sell this vision to them? Uh, well, you know, we, we, we wrote a strategy paper early in 2009, which I've been executing on ever since, essentially. You know, bond markets are global, funded capital markets are global. You know, look, there's some basic things. The holiday thing is we've got to turn it around from being a burden to an opportunity. We've got to make this effort. And then you pursue opportunities as they arise that happen to fit the framing you're trying to pursue. So like in 2012, for example, I had an opportunity to pitch what we were doing and what we were proposing, more to the point, because it was an idea in those days. People would look at me and they'd say, who is this nutter? And um, I had a visiting delegation of officials from the People's Bank of China and the National Development Reform Commission of China. And uh, a friend of mine, James Cameron, said, why don't you go and talk about this climate bond stuff, which was just a twinkle in people's eyes. And I did. And I had an argument about current account deficit and I had an argument about financial market reform that I was trying to achieve. And they liked it. And that led me to do some work in China. And then a couple of years later, I was on the Green Finance Task Force, the People's Bank of China, and we pitched the idea of building a green bond market as a force for change. And the Chinese, they're great at taking ideas and running them. And they took it. And now China's the world's second largest green bond market. That's an example. You know, or in, or in Europe, same thing, a couple of false starts, did a couple of papers for the commission, got invited to be a member of the high-level expert group in sustainable finance. God knows why they chose me. Whoa! But I'll have to ask them in 2016. And 
in that that report that we did in 2016, 2017, it turned out to be incredibly influential. So that's a story in its own right about how we got there and the, the people that we had involved. And that led to the creation of European taxonomy, various other measures. They're examples. But, you know, a lot of the time, it's old-fashioned sales stuff. So the green bond stuff, the number of times I've wandered around the streets of Mumbai and Delhi, knocking on the doors of state-owned enterprises and banks, trying to convince them that green bond could be a good deal for them, you wouldn't believe it. But it worked. We have a green bond market now. So you take an idea and you persist, you persist, you persist. If the idea is any good, it will work. And that's my advice to everyone, really. You know, really focus on what you can do. Really think about the strategy. Come up with something that you think absolutely makes sense and then just go for it and keep going for it. That's, uh, that's what we've done. Uh, thank you, Sean. Uh, so one of the important things that uh, CBI does is uh, Climate Bonds Initiative Standard. And CBI has developed a climate bonds uh, taxonomy. Well, we started our taxonomy in 2012. It was an idea that we that I pitched. I wrote into the expert report that we did in 20 published in 2017, and the commission, to my surprise, picked it up. But note that we'd already proposed it to the, to the Chinese, and they picked it up in 2015. But the idea of the taxonomy is twofold. One is we need clear and simple guidance if we're going to grow financial markets. You know, financial markets need like AAA, basic simple rules they can follow that everyone can understand without having to look into the, the nuts and bolts of it, just a tool they can use. Complex scoring systems don't work. It's just too hard. And in climate change, a separate thing. The ESG idea is you know, environmental social governance is based in a kind of best-in-class approach. You can have best-in-class coal companies. You know, Actually, this doesn't work in climate because the science is very clear. We do this, we stop doing this. You know, in every sector of our lives and economy, we can identify what we've got to stop doing and what we've got to do more of. And that lends itself to a taxonomy. So the idea was we'd do, develop a rule set which would then govern the market, a 1.5-degree rule set. It took a few years. I remember in 2012 or 2013 speaking to the head of sustainability at one of the major U.S. banks. And he said, ah, oh, well, you know, climate, it's always going to be a small part of green, right? There's going to be a lot of water, there's going to be parks, it's going to be huge. And I said, no, you don't understand. Climate is everything. You can't be doing anything environmental without climate as a dominant factor because it is such a overwhelming, catastrophic risk that we face here. Well, now, some uh, eight years later, it's a climate market. We've got 1.6 trillion US of green bonds, and they're basically climate-focused. We've won that by putting our criteria, by continuing to comment on the market as we go through, by feeding data to the index providers and all the investors, by making sure it's quality data, all these ways of doing it. And now we've got that idea elevated into government. And it's tough coming up with the rule sets, but when you've got the rule sets, everyone just goes to them. So do you know what the rule sets are around transport? So everyone, you know, if so, someone, if we adopt, adopt the old emissions efficiency or emissions improvements model, then if Volkswagen had built a new car plant outside of Duisburg, they would probably say fifteen percent emissions on compared to the existing diesel plant. Sounds good, right? What's not to like? But actually, when you look at what we have to achieve in the transport sector to meet our twenty thirty targets, and 2030 targets actually really need to be a little bit better than what Europe and the US are providing, but let's just go with those at the moment. 
you can't do diesel. It's not ambitious enough. You've got to have a much steeper reduction in emissions. That's the idea of the taxonomy rule set. What is the minimum that we have to get to meet our 2030 targets? Luckily, Volkswagen is building electric plants, electric car plants, which they, which they should be doing. And if they'd built diesel, it would have been counterproductive. In other words, it would have been worse than continuing the same way because they would have blocked the chance to build a new plant that was electric. It would have been uh, harmful. And that's something very important to understand about rule sets here. Not all improvements are good. If you improve the energy efficiency of a building in downtown Amsterdam and you improve it by about 10%, you're not going to do another retrofit for, for another 20 years or 15 years. You are missing the chance to do a substantial retrofit. You are doing more harm than good. You need to figure out what the level of retrofit you've got to do is, and then that is good enough. And so you get the idea behind the rule sets anyway, and it's worked. Follow up on that is uh, CBI also has a transition finance framework, especially sure. a transition finance framework for uh, transforming companies. And what I like about it is that in framework, you have five principles, right? You need to have a 1.5 degree trajectory. You need to have scientific-based targets. You need to count in upstream uh, scope three emissions uh, and don't think about offsets. Yep. It needs to be technology viable and action and not ledgers. And also you have five different categories for economic activities. And I, if I'm not mistaken, you give labels to that, right? Yep. Could, uh, could you delve more into the uh, transition finance framework? First, to be clear, it's not separate to green or climate. It's a subset. So as the market gets bigger, we've got to start examining more and more areas that we haven't got around to the beginning. This started off as a clean energy financing stuff. We managed to add transport, rail especially, because rail is so much more carbon efficient than vehicles. And then electric vehicles have come along. And now we need going to tougher areas. This, in the transition area, let's call it high carbon areas that have got to go low carbon. There are some high carbon areas that simply have to disappear coal plants. They've got to go. There is not a coal plant that will qualify anywhere in our view. However, steel plants, we're going to need a lot of steel to make this transition. And middle classes and emerging markets are emerging and they're going to grow. And to be honest, they need to grow. You know, we and the rich have been hogging the money for long enough. We need to share it around and we need to ensure equitable growth. And that's going to mean a lot of steel in places like Lagos and Jakarta and, and Sao Paulo. So, We've got to make sure it's zero carbon steel. Now, what we're looking at is what are minimum requirements for the steel industry to transition. And we're looking at a number of things. What are investments that a steel company could make? And this applies, by the way, to a concrete company or a chemicals company or any kind of, so aluminium or whatever, that would be consistent with the change we've got to achieve. Again, we've got to know what the level of ambition is that's required to meet our targets. So you need a benchmark reference. And then we're also looking at what if a company makes a commitment to transition, which might involve CapEx, but keeps operating its old plant for the short term. How quickly does it improve? How can we assess a corporate strategy? Now, this is quite important in Europe at the moment because investors have been pushing companies really hard, good on them, to come out with strong corporate transition plans. But we haven't had a framework to judge them. Well, look at Shell's big uh, oil company. They're planning to hit net zero by 2050. Sounds good so far. But then if you unpack the plan, that includes another $10 billion of investment in oil and gas plants in the next 15 years. Hang on. The International Energy Agency put out a report earlier this year which says to achieve our 1.5 degree targets, there can be no new investments in fossil fuel of any kind. 
something that's a square here, right? And then you look a bit further in the shell plan, and they've got a lot of offsets. They're planning to plant trees in an area the size of Spain. Whoa, that's a lot of territory. <laughs> Is that going to work? But more to the point, can you really plant trees to soak up carbon over here when you're still belching out carbon here? Well, if we had more time, you might be able to do that in the 1980s, 1990s. But now, you know, we put more emissions into the atmosphere in the last 30 years since we've been having UN climate change agreements than in the previous 150 years. We're going backwards. This year, emissions will climb 16% after they've been dropping 8% last year. We don't have time anymore to keep belching out here while reducing down here. We've got to do everything at once. So offsets don't count, just like you said. So now we're getting a sense of how to assess the Chichel plan. Uh, not going to cut the mustard. But can we look at total energies? Can we look at BP's plan? And we'll keep looking and provide guidance about what the plans need to look like to qualify. But that, you know, the oil and gas companies are the controversial ones. It applies everywhere. It applies to motorway companies for that matter, but certainly to auto companies, certainly to property companies. And that's what we need to do now. We need to understand not only what is green, which is great and very important. I'd like to go around with a you know, spray can and in front of everything in a city that's, that's a climate investment to put a big green site tick on it, like a, every tube or subway or metro line, big tick, you know, buildings that are really efficient, big tick. We need to know this stuff. But also we need to look at the companies that are doing it. So they may be crap now. To take a company like Sasol in South Africa, this is the world's, I think, the world's most carbon-intensive company because they take coal and turn it into oil and gas. It is so bad. It's unbelievable. But they have just published an amazing plan to shift to producing green hydrogen. Now, I don't know yet. We haven't done a, that kind of framework assessment yet. But I'm thinking, good on them. We need to be able to assess. This is good enough. You know, if they, if they are making the change, which is the kind of change you see, we need to support them. You know, subject to checking in every year to make sure they're on progress, we need to say, hurrah, and that's what we're trying to do with transitions. Uh, thank you, Sean. In the beginning of this interview, you placed a major emphasis on uh, the role of government. And on uh, uh, CBI's website, there's a section for uh, policy actions and policy issues. There's some very, very interesting options, like, for example, tax incentives, so having tax credit bonds, direct subsidy bonds, uh, or tax exempt bonds, or even uh, green quantitative easing, right, for uh, increasing demand, and also how can um, a government work with the private sector to reduce the risk return profile, right, our purchasing agreements, feeding tariffs, uh, different insurance and stuff. I, I, I want to uh, pick your brain on, uh, in your opinion, what are the best policy solutions that we can implement uh, right away? Well, that's a very big canvas. Let me frame it this way. We have got to go from a very high carbon economy. You know, the wealth that we've created, longevity that you can look forward to if we don't hit catastrophic climate change, in which case our longevity will get really short quickly. Uh, the, the health system we have, the, the education we have, these are all based on fossil fuels. You know, it's cheap energy for fossil fuels that's created the civilization we have now. Um, but it's got to change very quickly. We've got to get off fossil fuels like super fast in the blink, certainly a geological blink. And ideally, we would get off tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. You know, even if we stopped fossil fuels entirely tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock, the latency effect of emissions of the atmosphere means that the world will keep warming for another 30 years, which means we've got 
climate change, guys. It's here. It's going to get worse for 30 years, and then it might get better if we get our act together. That's what it boils down to now. So, you know, we need to understand resi- the resilience agenda, by the way, preparing our societies to do it. The, the key point is to make the kind of change, the speed we want, is not something that private sector can do, individual companies. It's certainly not something individuals can do. We need governments to act. And the only question is how they act. So the ones you mentioned, the financial mechanisms, are useful and important. But there's a lot of other stuff. You know, like, can we just complete the banning of incandescent light bulbs around the world? We haven't done that everywhere yet. We have in Europe. You know, that's a really simple thing. And shift to LED light bulbs. Can we do what Norway's done and bring and bring in subsidies for electric vehicles so that this year 80% of all cars sold in Norway were electric? They've actually banned their subsidies now. They don't need them because the car prices come so down. Come come down so fast. Can we close down all the coal mines around the world like now and it pay coal miners a proper pension? We need just transition through this process. We can do this sort of stuff. And let's face it, the COVID has shown what we can do if we need to. Can we do all of these things require government? So it's not just fiscal or financial policy. Green quantitative easing is certainly one of those. And Christine Lagarde, the ECB, has been talking about that. She's been great on this topic. It's a, There's a whole lot of financial system mechanisms. It's guarantees. The US economy for the last 200 years has been built on liberal use of government guarantees in areas where they want policy to be pursued, from housing construction in the 1950s to soak up soldiers coming back from the Korean War, to even the state of Louisiana in the 1830s was worried that slave owners were going bankrupt because business was bad, so they provided guarantees for the securitization of slaves. I mean, how messed up is that? But that's an example of you use a financial instrument for public policy, however bad it is. We could use all of these things to shift the world to green, and we could just got to abandon the ones that are still in place for fossil fuels, which are, by the way, the subsidies for fossil fuels globally are much higher than the subsidies for renewable energy. So we've got, you know, we've got work to be done. And then there's energy policy. And then there's transport policy and urban policy. You know, If you build dead cities, the emissions are much, much lower. So what we need is cities like Paris or Barcelona, not cities like Atlanta or Los Angeles, which have a much higher footprint. And, you know, Barcelona is not a bad place to live. I've got a friend who lives there, and she thinks it's pretty damn cool, and I love going to Tampa restaurant. This is livability. We can make livability with low carbon, more walking, more bicycling, rails in between, leave the cars out of it, use a zip car or, or a share car scheme, or use Ubers. We can see how the world could change, and the buildings that are there have got to be super energy efficient. You know, in tropical zones in the last 10 years, we have installed more air conditioning capacity then we have renewable energy capacity. It's mad. It's because everyone's building a glass tower like they have in London and New York and then just bolting on a really crappy air conditioning unit on the side of it. Design principles for urban areas. What about agriculture? We've got incredibly sustainable agriculture practices in some parts of the world, unsustainable in other areas. We can capture vast amounts of carbon in the soil if we change our agricultural practices. That applies across the whole tropical zone. And while we're doing it, we can increase food productivity with the application of capital. Now you can see why I'm thinking of capital markets and bonds. You know, it, this is, it's all connected. But there is so much we can do. It's going to require government guidance, government regulation, government support, government 
tax breaks for farmers in in India, all the tools and everything that we use to direct society has got to be rethought green. If we do this, we can do this. Yeah, thank you, Sean. Uh, so now we've spoken about government. I would like to touch a bit on the private sector, especially institutional investors. And before I do that, I, I want to uh, tell the listeners that it's highly recommended to check out the Climate uh, Bonds Initiative website, especially the market intelligence section. Uh, you guys have an interactive data platform. You have a bond library. You even have a league table that compares all the different underwriters to all the different investment banks, which I thought was quite interesting. And also you have a segment where you have a list of stock exchanges and whether uh, they have a green bond segment. It was interesting to find that, for example, small countries like Luxembourg that had a major coal industry in the past, now they have a Luxembourg green exchange. Now, another thing that's interesting that recently you you mentioned that uh, by 2025, uh, the issuance of uh, climate-aligned bonds will reach 5 trillion per year. And before that, by 2022, it'll be uh, uh, 1 trillion per year. And another report that I also found interesting was the green pricing report. And it seems that institutional investors are incentivized to invest in green bonds because there's more liquidity, uh, especially with more underwriting, more green exchanges, uh, so on and so forth. And so what do you see the future look like? I know it's positive. Well, in, just in terms of the instrument that we've created, which is a very simple instrument, right? All it is is a, a, a debt, a bit of loan. But like if you want to borrow a car, borrow money from your aunt to buy a car, I should say. You go to your aunt and you say, look, can I borrow the money? I'll pay you back. I'm good for the money, as you know. And your aunt says, yeah, 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 sure, Jonas. I, I, I like you. I'll give you the money. I trust you. But you know what? We've got this environment problem. Can you? I want you to buy an electric car. Is that okay? Yeah, I want to buy an electric car. That's really good. And you know what? Every Christmas I'm going to come back and take you for a drive and show you how it works and so on. She said, yeah, that would be lovely. That's a green bond. That's all it is. It's as simple as that. You're borrowing money and you're promising to use it for green stuff for reasons of and, and you're reporting back every year to make sure that you really have spent the money and you haven't gone out and bought a gas car like Maserati. That's, that's what it boils down to. Now, because it's so simple, it's grown radically. For investors, this is a bond like any other bond. It's not, it hasn't got a complicated interest rate structure or, or whatever. It's just a bond. It's just your portfolio, but it's got a bonus feature, like getting a free set of steak knives, which it goes towards addressing climate change. And because of that, it grows. And because of that, it will grow. So now we have central banks setting up special funds to buy green bonds. We've got, well, let me just give you a flavor of the extent of demand. When the UK government issued its green sovereign bonds, a couple of months ago, it got it issued ten billion in a first tranche, and it got a hundred billion sterling of orders. And then that's that's like ninety billion sterling of spare cash floating around, wanting a green bond, right? That's a lot. And then the month after, the European Commission issued twelve billion euros of green bonds, and they got one hundred and thirty billion of orders. There's a hell of a lot of money sloshing around. They're looking for green folks. And that has an impact on price. Now, you know, because if you're at the shop and you and everyone wants to buy your fish, you can charge a bit more for a fish, right? Same principle. In this case, you get you charge a lower interest rate because you have to pay a low interest. Of course, for the investors, this actually works anyway because in the secondary market, people have more belief in their green bonds. They use it as signaling. They they think, okay, this company is doing something about green. So therefore, they're less risk. 
And as a result, green bonds perform other bonds better on the secondary market. And in downturns, you know, when Donald Trump used to send out a tweet saying he's going to declare war in North Korea, the market would crash. Green bonds held their value. Now, one of the things you need to know about green bonds, about bonds in general, is that bond investors are defensive because they're dominated by people who've got money they've got to keep, not money they're trying to make a fortune on. Something which holds its value while everything else collapses is gold dust. Larry Fink, who's the head of BlackRock, once said that he made money, the largest fund manager in the world, some $9 trillion under management. He made money not by giving people yield or interest rates. He made money by making sure they didn't lose their money. <laughs> and, and that's what green bonds are doing in the secondary market. So for those investors who are getting in green bonds, they've got a fabulous win-win situation. They've got a bonus feature. They can report to their customers what they're doing, et cetera, et cetera. And these bonds are worth more. So you can sort of see why it's going to grow, right? And it's going to grow 80% this year globally. We expect growth to keep up next year. And, yeah, I'm looking at 2025 at about 4 to $5 trillion a year of green bonds. At that point, but only then, will we say we're making a real contribution because right now we've just touched the surface. By the end of next year, we'll get a run rate of about a trillion dollars a year. The last year it was two seventy billion. This year it'll be five five hundred something billion. That's fast growth. The amount seem a lot of money compared to the the GDP of Mauritius or Norway, but it's not a huge amount of money compared to bond markets, financial markets. So we've got a long way to go. But you know the other benefits of green bonds are in some ways more important. Because one of the things we've established with green bonds, including the way they perform in the secondary market, is the stuff that's green is safer. It's lower risk. So for investors, they're saying, geez, I had no idea. You mean this green stuff, I'm less likely to lose my money? Yep. Do you mean this green stuff, therefore I'm getting better returns over time because it's safer? Yep. We turn the whole idea of investing in the shift to a clean green economy from being a cost, which is one of the... Odd things, you know, I used to be a big fan of the Stern report, which talked about the cost of shifting to clean and green being about 1% to 2%. But it was a cost. It was just right. There's a cost. Now we're saying to people, you are going to do better if you shift money to green. And that's building more emphasis. So right now there was a report that came out a couple of days ago showing that green stocks have a 20% average better price than non-green stocks now as a result. And they're right, guys. Shifting to a clean green economy gives us a chance to make money. If you think about them, you know, investing some ninety trillion dollars we've got to invest globally to shift to a green green economy. This is like Keynesian stimulus. This is kind of an argument between austerity and Keynesianism. The the brown approach, the sticking to the current economy, or the dirty black approach, really, is all about keeping on how we're going and not rocking the boat. What we need to do, a bit like we did during the pandemic, is to really stimulate our economies by investing in vast amounts of green stuff. And that will create jobs and that'll create GDP growth. I'm not a zero growth person. In places like England or Norway, sure. But for most of the world, if you're in Nigeria or Kenya or India, you want growth. You want education. You want health. You want to be able to eat properly. These are things you deserve as a member of the human race. We've got to deliver them. And we can do it this way. Your cities are going to look different to what they now, you know, you're not going to get a car in the suburbs. That's not going to work. What you're going to get is an apartment with a coffee shop down below and you can walk to the supermarket or or maybe the planet, the organic food store. <laughs> you know, 
that's the kind of world we're going to move to. So uh, now I'd like to transition the interview uh, to focus on, on China, especially in the beginning of the interview, you mentioned how you were previously a member of the People's Bank of China's Green Finance Task Force. Um, I also want to acknowledge the fact that CBI's website has a Mandarin section, like you can translate it. And I was quite impressed by that. And the fact that you guys also have uh, quarterly and uh, biannual uh, green bond market uh, newsletters focusing on China. I also was reading uh, before the interview the, the China 2020 report, and it, it shows that at least there was, I think, $44 billion in issuance. And I like how you segmented into Kung Fu bonds, Dim Sum bonds, and uh, Panda bonds. Uh, so, I mean, China is an interesting place. I myself lived in China for a year. I speak some Mandarin, and it's interesting to see they have the uh, 2016 climate targets. Uh, they even have uh, five-year plans with reduction targets, and and multiple provinces are now have incentives. You've you've spent a lot of time with the Chinese. How, how do you think the the Chinese uh, bond sector has evolved and will evolve? The market's going to grow very fast. I mean, China is really committed on shifting its economy to clean and green. Hey, it's got a few problems. It's um, got an incredibly dirty economy. It is now the largest polluter when it comes to emissions. It knows it. It's taken a while to get them to focus on, I'm going to call it macro pollution, emissions rather than micro pollutions, which is air quality, water quality, soil quality. Like they've had some real problems, right? They've created, they've created a modern Western society out of nothing in the last 30 years. Like it's an incredible piece of development. It dwarfs the development of the US in the 1880s and 1890s. But They've done it at an incredible cost to the environment. You know, the pollution stuff, the water you can't drink in the cities, the, the food that's adulterated. And the Communist Party knows it. Like they now understood it under Xi Jinping. They've understood they've got a mess and they've got to clean it up. But under the previous president, they did too. He started this idea of ecological civilization. He just didn't get very far. Um, partly because of the way the system would work and the corruption and so on. So the current president has been really banging down on corruption and has been pushing hard on, on climate. I've spoken at conferences that Xi Jinping's been the headliner. You know, I, I don't come close to him. But he has made speeches about climate. Now, that's slowly but surely wafting through the system. They have a coal-dependent economy. You know, They have reduced the usage of coal from 70% of all electricity, something like 56% of all electricity in the last few years. It's going in the right direction, but it's slow because they've got to keep the lights on and keep industry turning to make sure people can have a reasonable income. And they've still got about 100 million people who are way below the poverty pot line that they're going to lift up. So they're trying to balance the two. Over the last year, you've seen stronger and stronger announcements coming from the centre. So I think they're making progress. Hey, I'd like them to make a lot faster progress. Mind you, I would like that to be the case in the US and Europe as well, uh, in every country around the world. But I, I do think that for at least the central government is committed to doing something now. The challenge is the provinces have all got different priorities. You know, hey, I've got to keep the lights on. I've got to keep the Toyota factory going. I've got to keep getting jobs to poor rural people, all this sort of stuff. And they're in conflict, and they kind of try to sort it out. But one thing I do know for certain is the People's Bank of China and the other financial sector regulators are totally committed to green finance, and they're really pushing it. And we talk to them all the time, and it'll grow. It'll grow. You will see a lot more stuff coming to the market. Their green bond market, by the way, will grow this year 100% on last year's. It'll double in size. That's how fast things are going. It's pretty amazing. And some of the bonds are issued, like the ICBC, which is the largest bank in the world by market capitalization and, and revenues, is in the process of issuing $9 billion of certified climate bonds in the domestic market. 
to finance renewables and stuff like that. Paul, they do big numbers when they do stuff. Uh, so speaking of uh, China, you also mentioned the United States. And I also uh, read uh, CBI's North America State of the Market uh, 2021 report. Yeah, there are a lot of interesting facts there. For example, 50% of our top 100 cities and 50% of all the states have now reduction targets. And uh, the U.S., uh, it cumulatively it has over 5,840 different types of bonds, which are cumulatively worth uh, $275 billion. And the U.S. has been uh, making, especially this year, a lot of progress in terms of policy. For example, the Federal Reserve joined NGFS. Uh, they now have a supervision and a financial stability climate committee. The Biden administration has a 100% uh, carbon-free electricity target by 2035. I want to know your thoughts about the U.S. What more should they do and how should they progress to be able to reach uh, their ambitious goals? Well, you know, under the Trump years, it wasn't very popular to do green stuff amongst Republicans. A lot of the corporations are controlled by moderate Republicans, but they're in hiding. Uh, under the Biden administration, it's changing. Investment banks have been flooded with inquiries for doing green bonds this year, and we expect a lot to come to market over the next 12 months as a result. Um, so that's step one. I mean, it is the largest bond market in the world. American companies use bonds more to finance than other parts of the world, as well as the government, you know, the, the treasury bonds, the backstop. So we expect you know, it'll grow. Next year, we might even see a US government treasury bond, a sovereign green bond. It's a function of governments that are acting on climate change, they start looking for how to signal their intentions with the financial instruments they use. And that's certainly the case. I mean, just last week, or week before last, as you say, California issued a $300 million green bond, signaling to the world, certified climate bond actually, signaling to the world what it was doing. And we're going to see a, a lot more of that. So I think it'll come through. But you know, let's be clear, the bond stuff is useful. It's giving us social and political capital to have the arguments that count. The real arguments that count are with the relevant governments and corporations what you need to be doing. This is what the future looks like. This is how you change in the right direction. And while you're at it, you can get it financed by green bonds. That's kind of what we're going to. And in the US, we're in that stage now. You know, the government's infrastructure bill, for example, has a very heavy green tilt on it. And that will lead to complementary green bond financing because it only finances part of the infrastructure. They've got to get some private capital in and so on. So I think it'll happen. I would like to see a few incentives of various sorts. For example, they could do green QE. They can certainly do tax benefits for green bonds. One of the ways infrastructure has been financed in the US is municipal infrastructure bond tax credits. Incredibly successful. So let's make them all green. It gives a financial benefit to people who invest in bonds compared to other kind of bonds. There's a bunch of things like that we can do in the US that are very fiscally efficient. So I'm hoping we'll make progress in that over the next, next few months. Uh, we're now reaching the, close to the end of the uh, interview, and I have two last questions. The second last question is related to COP26. We, we just ended COP26, and uh, I know the CBI has a uh, post uh, on 12 brilliant uh, news that give you hope. If you could touch on that, please. Look, Agreement between member states we don't have a lot of hope about because essentially it's a non-binding agreement and, you know, really it's not that relevant that 200 states agree. What's relevant is the major economies agree. You know, it's about China, Europe and the US agreeing and maybe Japan and India with them, then Brazil. It's like a G20 story. It's not a G200 story, which is what the COP's about. So the agreement was great, but not strong enough. We know that. 
messed around by individual countries with their particular views, sometimes about justice, sometimes about maintaining their own fossil fuels. That's life. That's what happens. Though. But we did see some other announcements that were pretty damn good. So one was the GFAN announcement, which is the, the Glasgow Financial Coalition, the 130 trillion US represented on that coalition saying they want green, they want to change the world to clean and green. Now, that is pretty cool. That mirrors, of course, the demand for green bonds that I was talking about earlier. It's those same people that are signing this. That's fantastic. We also saw some really clear, specific projects, like, for example, European countries supporting just transition in South Africa, and which is a winding down of the coal energy system that dominates Africa and shifting to renewables. That's what we need. More of that rich countries pony up the money. Now, there's a mixture of some grant and debt that to pay back some of that debt, but it's cheap debt because it's European interest rates, which is dirt cheap, so much cheaper than African, South African debt. We also saw the Asian Development Bank create a, essentially a bad bank to buy up coal plants and then close them down faster. Excellent news. We need one of those in every country, right? Imagine setting up a $5 billion fund in Europe whose only job is to buy up all the coal plants and then to run them down super fast, and we make sure we run them down, and the government uses the money to finance new renewables. You know, these are the sort of ideas that have been popping out of this COP. And there's a lot more like it, like that. So that's what I'm really interested in. And I'm also cheered by two other announcements. The first was China and the US putting out a joint announcement, how they're going to work together, particularly on methane, which is the biggest problem we have at the moment because it's a short-term impact on the climate. Now, that was really good in the context of the fights. They've been, they've been fighting our cats and dogs for years. We can now see collaboration on green. They'll keep fighting on like cats and dogs and everything else, but as long as they collaborate on green. And then we saw this week when John Kerry got back to the US, the announcement from Europe and the US that they're going to work together on reduced tariffs for low-carbon aluminium and low-carbon steel. Yes, let's use the trade to drive the change. Now, imagine we're going to next see Europe, China, US together. We did see this week, we were part of launching the common ground taxonomy, common guidance for green between China and Europe. That's the stuff that gets me going. That's the stuff that gives me hope. I wish that was my closing question because you, you presented that really well. But anyway, maybe this closing question is not as great, as, but it's also important. So a lot of listeners who are listening to this podcast are quite interested in green bonds. And after listening to this podcast, how can they learn more? I know that uh, CBI has uh, green bond training programs. I know you recently became a professor of practice at uh, SOAS University of London. There's a lot of great online content, webinars, podcasts, so on. And also, I was very fortunate that you gave us students like me, especially from developing countries, scholarships to attend Climate Bonds Conference in 21. And keep an eye out for next year's conference because we'll be doing the same thing again if anyone wants to join. There's a lot of material online. Just go to our website. It's just got... Well, I don't know, so much stuff, I'm swamped by it. <laughs> Do a search and think stuff. There's a re- re- report section, lots and lots of reports. That's one basic. If you do a search online in green bonds, you will find some good stuff. I mean, there's some crap stuff there, like the internet's full of that, right? But, you know, the ICMA green bond principles have got stuff, the International Capital Markets Association. There's many more. Search for taxonomies, EU taxonomy, taxonomy guidelines. There's a lot of work around the world. And then look at the Network for the Greening of the Financial System, the association of 100 central banks that are working now to do what they can do to reduce the risk of climate change messing up the financial system going forward. There's a lot around. 
if you're able to read this stuff, then go for it. A lot of it's English, but there is also a lot in Chinese. There's a lot in Spanish. There's a lot in French, a lot in German. So in many languages, there's material. I'd like to see more in Arabic. Next year, the COP will be in Sharm el-Sheikh in, in uh, Egypt, and then probably in Abu Dhabi the year after. I think we'll see an explosion of Middle Eastern publications as a result. There's a lot of work to be done around the world, but you know, if you look, there's a lot of stuff there. That's what I'd say. If you're an investor, it's hard because most of the green bonds are aimed at pension funds and insurance funds and, and banks to buy. But there are things like ETFs, exchange-traded funds, which people can invest in, in in Europe and the US, which mirror the green bond market. There, there are a few things floating up, and we'll see more. I mean, I know the UK government, with its sovereign green bond, did a retail version for ordinary citizens. And also two of my local councils near where I live, Islington and Camden, have both announced small green bonds for local residents. This is going to catch on. You're going to see more and more of this happening. So keep an eye out. And, you know, I'm going to put it another way. Demand it. Remember, this is the same interest rate. You're not paying a low interest rate. Given that, why isn't everyone doing it? If they're not, ask them why not. And go to your bank and say, give me some green bonds. I want green bonds. Go to your broker. Go to your local government and say, issue some green bonds. Let's demand it because that then forces them to look at what they can do and what they need to do to be able to finance with green bonds, which um, drives the agenda. Thank you very much, uh, Sean, for this great interview. Uh, I learned a lot from you, and I'm sure the listeners will learn a lot. Uh, Have a great day or a great night. Good luck of it, Jonas. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Climate Finance Podcast. For future episodes, please join our mailing list on www.climatefinance.xyz. I repeat, www.climatefinance.xyz. See you at the next episode.